0: Good morning. I invite you to open your Bibles with me and turn to the book of Colossians, chapter 3. I'll be reading from the NASB, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 11. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked, when you were living in them, But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you've laid aside the old self with its evil practices and put on the new self who's being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man, But Christ is all, and in all. The title of today's sermon is The Life of the New Man. And it's a very rich passage of scripture that we're looking at today. The first four verses look at the person's, the believer's position in Christ. And the last, actually from verse 5 all the way into chapter 4, maybe verse 6, looks at the practice of the believer. It begins with therefore, and that marks the Apostle Paul pivoting away from the doctrinal section of the letter, which is chapters one and two, towards the more practical section of the letter, which is chapters three and four. And Paul's twin exhortation, to keep seeking the things above, and to set your mind on the things above, just germinate out of the believer's inseparable connection to Christ. Verses one through four again. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Paul is laying the foundation of his twin exhortations on what is true of the Colossians past, that as you've died and you've been raised up with Christ, what is true of their present, your life is hidden with Christ, and what is also true of their future, they will be revealed with Christ in glory. And we're gonna approach it that way this morning. So let's take block one. You have died. That's in verse three. What does that mean? I recently saw a clip from the uh, Dr. Phil TV show uh, where a father named Jim and his daughter Maya were on. They had a dispute and Maya was kicked out of her father's home. Uh, Maya recorded a conversation with her father and Dr. Phil had that recording and he played it for the studio audience. Here's what what Jim said. You're a narcissistic drama queen who can't do basic things like bathe. He ended the call by saying, enjoy your life. I wish you the best. You're dead to me. Dr. Phil then told the studio audience that he had a follow-up conversation with Jim, where Jim reiterated that Maya was still dead to him. He said, the only thing that's changed is three weeks have passed. A father telling his daughter, you're dead to me. We all know what that means. From Jim's perspective, his relationship with his daughter had ended. So there is now a rift between this father and his own daughter. The same idea is present here in the text. A schism now exists between the Colossians and something that they at one time had a propinquity to. So the idea that uh, someone is dead means that you've been separated from something. Now in order to understand what you've been separated from, we need to understand what the Colossians were tied to. Even though Colossae was a small city in Phrygia in the first century, it was made up of mostly Greek colonists, native Phrygians, and Jews. And as can be expected, there were, it was a melting pot of different cultures, ideas, and religious thought. So this fledgling Colossian church was in danger of religious syncretism. Now, we're not sure of the specific heresy that was seeping into the church, but we are sure that there are elements of Gnosticism, which is a early uh, form of heresy, a Greek philosophical heresy that eventually came to espouse dualism. Now, dualism taught that the world was divided between two cosmic forces, good and evil. And Gnostics identified evil with, with matter. So anything physical was evil and anything good was spiritual. So it's, no, it's not surprising that some are ascetics and they practice severe self-discipline, as you can tell from Paul's comments in chapter two, as well as they abstained from all forms of indulgence. There also appears to be elements of relying on higher knowledge or hidden wisdom that wasn't derived from scripture, but a mystical higher plane of existence as the means of salvation. There were elements of Jewish legalism and oriental mysticism that when you boil it down and you strain away the individual nuances of each system, they cut away the person and all sufficient work of Jesus Christ. So like sheep before its sharers, this fledgling Colossian church was being fleeced of their prize by not only a distortion of the nature of Christ, but also the shares of asceticism, delighting in self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, the shares of Jewish legalism by dietary regulations, ritual observations, the worship of angels, vacuous speculations, and mystical visions. And these shares are encapsulated in the expression elementary principles of the world adhering to these elementary principles of the world to achieve salvation and spiritual growth cut away at the person and all-sufficient work of Christ. Now, the Apostle Paul, he's not having that. He just demolishes this idea. He tells them, don't let anyone act as your judge in the matter of food or drink or in regard to festival, new moon, or Sabbath days. And he summed it up this way in chapter 2, verses 20 and 21. He says, if you've died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why is if you were living in the world, Do you submit yourself to decrees such as, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. Paul is telling the Colossians, if you're in Christ, you died with him. The death that he died identified you with him, it connected you with him, and it completely alienated you from the elementary principles of this world. The same is true of us today. If you're in Christ, The death that he died identified you with him. It connected you and it liberated you from the bonds of human tradition that seeks to add to Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross. This type of thinking hasn't gone away today. We see it in many of the cults today, even some elements in the hyper-charismatic movement. I just want to remind you that any attempt to intimacy with God through any other means than Jesus Christ undermines that work. Staying on that block of the past, Paul continues and says, you've been raised up with Christ. Well, the first implication is that the Colossian church was previously dead. And you can see that in chapter two, verse 13a, when he says, when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Paul is saying, you were separated from God, decaying in your rebellion and under the dominion of the corrupting rule of sin. This was your spiritual condition. But God the Father raised Jesus Christ from the dead, and he validated that fact by raising him from the dead, as a satisfactory, all-sufficient payment for sin, and in so doing, lifting you out of the mire of spiritual death to newness of life. Don't miss that. As Christ was raised to a resurrected life, so you too have been raised. And this life is currently hidden with Christ in God. Paul has moved from what is true of the Colossians past to what is true of their present experience. In fact, the word hidden is in the perfect tense, and the perfect tense conveys an idea of something completed in the past with results continuing in the present. And that which is hidden is stored away because of its value, almost like a a treasure. So Paul is saying that you have been and you continue to be covered by Jesus Christ in God. What a comforting word that must have been to this Colossian church that was riddled with isms. What a comforting truth that is for us today. We have been and we remain secure from the wrath of God because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. What magnanimous grace. Now, if what's true of their past and what's true of their present wasn't enough, Paul says, when Christ, who is our life, now stop right there, this is Jesus, who is the preeminent one. This is the one who Paul bigs up in the beginning of this letter as the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, the one who created all things and through whom all things have their being. He's the head of the body, the church, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. It's of him that Paul says, when Christ, who is our life, when he is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So Paul marries the present with the future. This Jesus Christ, who holds his place of primacy in our lives, he is going to come back in glory. And we're going to be a part of that. That's what Paul is telling the Colossians. Now, if we just step back from that, given the reality of all of this, Think about it this way. This is the theological basis for our Christian life. Because you've been identified with Christ in his death, cut off from the elementary principles of this world or human traditions of this world, cut off from the dominion or rule of sin, because you've been raised up with Christ from spiritual death by faith to newness of life, all the while that that life that you now live in the flesh by faith in the Son of God has been and remains eternally secured by him, and one day, when he comes again, you're going to be a part of that glorious coming? Given the reality of that, given the the magnitude of that, Paul then goes on to say, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. This is the divine expectation. Please see what Paul is doing here. Given the reality that we've died with Christ, we've been raised with Christ, our life is hidden with Christ, and one day we will be revealed with Christ in glory. Given that reality... This is the expectation. So you may be wondering, okay, Drew, what are the things above? Because it doesn't really say right here. Well, if you look back in chapter one, verse five, Paul shares that he's thankful to God for the hope laid up for you in heaven, which you've previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. So this is something that they've heard about before. In verse 12 of chapter one, Paul continues, and he says he gives thanks to God who qualified them to share in the inheritance of the saints. And he urges them to give thanks. So, this is something they should also be grateful for. And in verse 22, he, that's Jesus, has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. So, Paul identifies it. He says, keep seeking the things above. That is, to keep seeking after, to aim at, strive after, and set your mind. That means to direct one's mind to a thing. Both are parallel expressions and both are present tense, active, indicative. So they ought to be read in the sense to be keep seeking the things above, to be constantly directing one's mind to a thing. There's an obsessive fixation that we as believers should have on Jesus Christ and heavenly things. And when I think about obsessive, I think about Kobe Bryant because I like basketball. Kobe Bryant played in the NBA for 20 years, 1996 to 2016. He tragically died last year in a helicopter crash. But this man was so obsessed with being the best basketball player that he changed his jersey number from 8 to 24 because he said the number 24 represented the length of one day. One half in an NBA game, one shot clock. And he said the number 24 was his promise to dominate every moment. Here's what he said when he had an interview shortly before he had passed away. When asked about Kobe, why do you wake up so early to train? Here's what he said. He said, if you wake up at 3, train at 4. You come home, eat breakfast, relax. Now you're back at it again, nine to 11. Relax, back at it again, two to four. Now you're back at it again, seven and nine. By year five and six, it doesn't matter what kind of work my competitors do in the summer, they're never gonna catch up because they're five years behind. What do we have that dogged pursuit for? The, The way Kobe Bryant pursued the mantle of the best basketball player, do we have that relentless pursuit of Jesus Christ and holiness? What drives you? Material wealth? Satisfaction of a good career? The affection of the opposite sex? The limelight or popularity? You may say, mindrew, I'm driven by these things, man. I'm just trying to survive. Plenty of things going on. COVID-19, vaccines, politics. We just had a government change. Maybe you thought it was a people's time and it turned out to be a new day. So now you're you're uncertain, you have some fear about the future. These things shouldn't be. We as believers are to be constantly seeking intimacy with God, with Jesus Christ. So you wonder now, how do we pursue Christ and those heavenly blessings that he's laid up for us in heaven? Verse 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Now I'm reading from the NASB, but I don't think it captures the viciousness of what Paul is calling for here. Paul is calling for an execution. We are to kill whatever is sinful in us. And that is what these things are, sinful desires. Immorality is illicit sexual intercourse or relations, and that includes adultery, fornication, homosexuality, and bestiality. The text says impurity, that is uncleanliness in a moral sense. Passion is a depraved affection of the mind evil desire, a base or wicked longing for what is forbidden. Greed is an inordinate desire for wealth. And greed at its very essence is idolatry. In fact, all these sins are in a sense idolatrous. When we elevate our own desires above God to the seat of authority in our lives, we objectify God. And as a result, we desacralize his standards. The result is that nothing is sacred. Human sexuality is no longer sacred each person does what is right in their own in their own minds the marital relationship isn't sacred that which belongs to someone else isn't sacred God's Word is saying that we shouldn't allow our sinful desires to have breath we have to kill whatever is worldly in us you may say mind I don't really do these things though oh really what do you watch on TV what do you look at on the internet or your phone you may be resuscitating the desires of your heart by what you watch. What about the message in the songs that you're listening to? Can you recite more of the lyrics from the songs of Drake or from the Psalms of David? Or well, maybe you don't watch TV, BPL is off, you don't have the internet, you have a bubbler phone. Well, I know you talk to people. So who are your friends and what do you talk about? Men, how do you look at women? Do you undress them with your eyes? Is your speech seasoned with with purity or the impure motive? Women, do you flaunt yourselves for the attention of other men or the envy of other women without consideration for for your brother or sister's purity? Are we encouraging each other to elevate Christ or to elevate ourselves? Paul continues in verses six and seven. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them, you also once walked when you were living in them. The the wrath of God refers to that in God which stands in opposition to the disobedience in man. And I know our English Bible says will come, but in Greek, it's actually in the present tense. So the disobedient are ever under the punishing reality of God's staring holiness that burns at their sin. And Paul is saying that these desires once characterized your way of life. Such were some of you, with the wrath of God looming over you. But Paul continues in verse 8. But now you also put them all aside. Anger, that's a settled attitude of hostility. That's like when we say, but I watch for you. Wrath, it's anger immediately boiling up and then soon subsiding. Or in Bahamian tripping out. When someone cuts you off in traffic and you're like, tripping out. Malice means vicious thoughts or a desire to injure. Slander refers to speech that's damaging to another person's name. Abusive speech, that's vile conversation or foul speaking. Verse nine, do not lie to one another since you've laid aside the old self. That is like the clothing of a PMH COVID ward doctor. Like their clothing has been stripped away before going home to his family. you completely put off from you the old self with its evil practices. And you've put on the new self, which is the brand new man. And that new man is fashioned and patterned in the likeness of Christ, in righteousness and holiness. And this new kind of man is being caused to grow up into the very image of Christ. So like a software upgrade adds new uh, functionality and feature enhancements to software equipment, so the believer in Jesus Christ is molded and shaped into the very image of Christ by the truth of him as opposed to heretical teaching. Verse 11 says, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man. But Christ is all and in all. Christ's likeness isn't impeded or hindered by any racial, cultural, or sociological uh, barriers. Paul is saying here it doesn't matter if you're a Greek or a Jew. Now the word Greek is all people that are not Jews that adopted the language, culture, as well as the learning of the Greeks. Here it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or Gentile. In fact, it doesn't even matter if you're a barbarian or a Scythian. The word for barbarian here is interesting. Do you remember the word onomatopoeia, a figure of speech? Well, the Greeks had this particular word, barbaros, as an onomatopoeia for the way that they heard the European tribes speak. To them it sounded like bar, bar, bar. So they called the word Barbaros. And Barbaros people were people that were uncivilized and uncultured. And if you could think of a person that would be the king of uncivilized and uncultured, it would be the Scythians. They're they're like the the most uncivilized group of all time in the minds of the Greek uh, and Roman people. They were very brutish to the Greeks as well as Boorish, and what Paul is saying for the Colossians' sake—he's trying to capture every conceivable racial and sociological difference that are perceived barriers to unity with Christ. Now, don't get me wrong; these are real differences. A Jew is not a Greek. A Jew is not a Gentile, and a Greek was not a barbarian, and a Greek was not a Scythian, and a slave obviously isn't free. But Christ transcends these differences. The same is true of us today. Whether you're a Bahamian, Haitian, American, Canadian, Chinese, doesn't matter. Christ transcends ethnicity. It doesn't matter if you're a boss, if you're a gopher, doesn't matter if you don't have a job, or if you're a CEO. Christ transcends that. And what Paul is saying here is that the new man's transformation isn't based on that ethnicity or status in life, but instead on a fuller, richer understanding of Christ, such that Christ has a fuller hold of that man, making him more obedient to the truth. I'll say that again, because that's important. It isn't based on ethnicity or status, but instead of a, on a fuller understanding of Christ, such that Christ has a fuller hold of him, making that person obedient to the truth. It's not just head knowledge, it's lived out. So I, my challenge to you today is to ask yourself, are you holding on to the things of this world? Are you seeking Christ? or God via the way of the world through vain self-righteousness instead of by the knowledge of the truth of Christ and obedience to his word. I leave you with the words of Paul in Philippians, verse 12, chapter 3. Not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect, but I press on, so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ, verse 14. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. My encouragement to you today is to press on. There's a lot of things going on, real things, real causes for concern. But set your mind on Christ. Seek him hard, like Kobe pursued basketball, willing to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning to, to train so that nobody could catch him up. That's how we should be in our pursuit of our relationship with Christ. That's how we should be in our pursuit of holiness. And that's what Paul's laying out for us here. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know the challenges that we all face, the spoken and the unspoken, the desires of our hearts. God, we ask that you would just orient our minds and our thoughts toward you. You're the only one who's worthy of our attention. We know that in you is is life, abundant life. Help us to seek you. Help us to love you, to live in a way that brings honor and glory to you so that we can lead others to you, so that they can come to a saving knowledge and grow. This we pray in Christ's wonderful name. Amen.